All right, good evening. Hope all of y'all are doing all right. Thank you for joining me tonight for Bible study. When chaos is reigning in the world outside, we can come in here to our shelter in the Word of God and just enjoy being together. I don't know about you, but this time change still has me all messed up, waking up at 4.30 in the morning thinking it's time to get up. I don't know, it went from being dark at 9 o'clock to, to being midnight at 5.30. It's just weird, and I'm not used to it, but uh, it is it's good to be here. Good evening to all of y'all. Hey, Rick, how you doing? Thank y'all so much for joining me tonight. I'm excited. I got, I got a word from the Lord for you about the election. It's in John 14, 1. Let not your heart be troubled, all right? We're not looking anywhere to Washington for our hope. Our hope is in the Lord. And when you see what's going on, you got to remember that God's word says it gets bad before it gets good. And maybe some of y'all think it's good now or whatever's going on, however you view things. Irrelevant. Jesus is on the throne. Let not your heart be troubled. Hello to Pennsylvania, Miss Kathy. Thank you, Miss Angie Fell, for joining us. I'm so glad that you're here. And I uh, just been, there's an old hymn I used to know called My Father Planned It All. What though the way be lonely or dark the shadows fall. I know whatever befalls me, my father planned it all. I sing through the shade and the sunshine, I'll trust him whatever befall. I sing for I cannot be silent, my father planned it all. I just rest in the assurance that God is in control. Hey, Miss Nan, thank you for speaking to me, and that is my only confidence. And so yesterday, hey, Miss Tammy, I went and voted, and then I didn't even turn on the news. People told me, oh, I stayed up till 3 o'clock in the morning watching that. Why? I did what I can do. I voted. Now it's up to the Lord. And the Bible says promotion does not come from the north or from the south or from the east or from the west. God puts down one and sets up another. And Trump might be your man, but he might not be God's man. Biden might be God's man. He might be the one that God wants in to accomplish his purpose. So give it to God. Let him deal with it and quit worrying about it. What can you change anyway? Running around fretful your whole day checking the news to wait to see when the Votes get tallied. I think both sides cheat anyway. A politician, by very definition, is pragmatic and the end justifies the means. And if you trust any of them, your, your trust is misplaced. Put your trust in the throne that is not up for re-election, never has been. And the Lord is seated on the throne high and lifted up, and the cherubim surround him, and the smoke fills the temple, and they cry, Holy, 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 and at the sound of their voice, the post shake and God is in control and every one of those well, can I just be real plain every one of them those arrogant suckers in Washington DC are going to bow before Jesus and recognize that he is king of kings and he is lord of lords and my heart is not to be troubled up to that day and so that's my word from the lord for you today if you don't get anything outside of it get that don't worry about it god's in charge and uh, i love my country and i have opinions about things and hey brother david I had a great birthday. Thank you so much. 51 years old. 19 years left till I reach the big 70. That's all I'm promised. I might not get all of that, so I got to get busy. But uh, I have opinions about things just like anybody else does, but uh, uh, I, I trust a God who knows what he's doing. And if you have that confidence, you have more than most of the world. Go ahead and open your Bibles to the book of 1 John. 1 John, this is class number five of six. Uh, in the book of 1 John, I told Pastor Matt I wanted to spend about six weeks in 1 John. We certainly have not gleaned all there is to glean from this book, but uh, I hope that you will take some time to read it. It's only five chapters, and you can read it about as quickly as you can watch a show on Netflix. So just go ahead and choose the, the best 
thing to do with your time and read the Word of God. Now, as everybody gets on here and follows along, I want to kind of go over just a little bit to lay some groundwork about where we're at in our study and then go forward from there. And so set aside all of your election stuff, turn off the news, and focus on the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now remember, 1 John is about fellowship. And speaking of fellowship, I need to remind you of things that are going on here at Liberty this coming weekend. It just popped in my head. I'd written it down, but then forgot to say it. I, I want you to remember these. November the 7th, this coming Saturday, we will have our fall festival. It's primarily for our kids, lots of uh, inflatables, and we'll have some cotton candy and popcorn. I know we got a hayride and some maybe some face painting. I'm not sure about all of that um, with brushes, not spray paint, and uh, but that would be humorous. But uh, that starts at 2 o'clock on Saturday at the church. If you want to help with that, Pastor Brad certainly can use the help uh, with kids and inflatables and all. We just need some adult presence around, and you can help with that. Just show up on, um, on Saturday, and we'll put you to work. Starts about 2. Be here about 1.30 if you want to help. We'll put you to work. Last till about 4. Thank you already to all those who have dedicated and promised their time. We sure do appreciate that. Then, of course, on November the 8th, we have service at 9, 30, and 11. Let me tell you something. I know there's a virus going on, and I know some people are fearful, and I get all of that. You just have to follow your heart with the Lord. But God is doing some things on Sunday morning at Liberty. Pastor Matt has been preaching and convicting our hearts, and just I, I, I just wouldn't miss it. i just be honest with you. I know you can watch it online, but it's not the same. And the worship is not the same, and, and, and the praise team has been singing, and God's just been, I get something, I get to hear the sermons twice, I get to hear the songs twice, and I get something out of the 11 o'clock service that I didn't get from 930, and vice versa. Y'all guys worship differently in the two services anyway, uh, but it's it's been an incredible time at Liberty through all of this. And though 2020 has been a difficult year for many people, and even at the church here, some things have been different. God's still just been showing himself faithful and moving forward and things. I just it's, it's just an exciting place to be. And if you're not here, why? Where else are you? Because there's nothing going on in York County like what God is doing at Liberty Church. And I don't get paid to say that. And uh, it's just because I believe it with all my heart. And if, if, if I know God's doing things at other churches, but it just isn't like our place. And uh, if you haven't been here or you just watched a lot, you need to come check it out because uh, God's doing great things. And then, of course, Sunday evening on November 8th at 6 o'clock, Pastor Matt has our night of vision, all right? We're going to have, a, first of all, a night of worship. The praise team's going to be there. We're going to be relaxed. Nobody's going to be in suit coats or ties. Just wear jeans and a t-shirt. Come up here. We're going to be worshiping for a little while, just thanking God for his goodness to us. Um, we might let you come up and just take requests from the floor. No, we're not doing that. Don't, don't get your hopes up. Um, the, the, the professionals will sing, the brace team will sing, and uh, we'll worship together. And then Pastor Matt is going to just talk about his vision for Liberty Church in 2021. Going to talk to each of the staff members and their departments and kind of let you know what's going on. And if, if you want to kind of get a scope or an overview of our budget ideas and how we're going to direct our spending for the next year and uh, what the staff is going to be doing, you need to be here on Sunday night, all right? Be here at 6 o'clock for the worship. We'll have a time of fellowship. Coffee and things will be available, and we'll have a good time together. And so that's what fellowship is all about, and you can fellowship with us at Liberty Church this weekend on Saturday and Sunday. But 1 John emphasizes that idea of fellowship, and remember, there are some proofs of fellowship. 
And one of the proofs that we've been talking about for about two weeks is the proof that I am walking in the light. And how do I know I'm walking in the light? I gave you three things. We discussed two of them. Number three is tonight, all right? The first is I have the right attitude towards sin and my confession. We talked about that. Secondly, last time we were together, we talked about obedience. Remember the song, all right? Rick sent that to me in Facebook Messenger, and it got in my head all night long. Obedience is the way to show you're walking in the light. Then the third one, which we're going to talk about tonight, starts in chapter 2, and it starts in verse 18. And the proof that I'm walking in the light is the rejection of false doctrine. All right? So, Brother Dusty, how do I know it's false doctrine? Let's read it, all right? It says, little children, it is the last time. Now, let me just stop right here. If John thought it was the last time, and this was roughly 90 A.D., what time must it be now? It also goes to show us that every generation thinks they're in the last days. Every generation does. But we don't know when the last days are. John thought it was then. And ye have heard that Antichrist, singular, shall come. Even now there are many Antichrists, plural, whereby we know that it is the last time. And they went out from us because they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out that it might be made manifest that they were not all of us. But ye have an unction or an anointing from the Holy One, and ye know all things. I've not written unto you because ye know not the truth, but because ye know it, and that no lie is of the truth. Now, let me just point out to you that John is the only person in the Bible, the only writer who mentions Antichrist by that name, all right? Paul calls him the son of perdition. Daniel calls him the little horn. In Revelation, he's called the beast. But John's the only one who calls him Antichrist. He calls him that. And 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1 through 12 says that he is the man of sin. In other words, he is the climax of all the sins of men. He's the pinnacle. He's the very top sinner. He is the man of sin. He is the Antichrist. And anytime you talk about Antichrist, people want to get off into the blood moons and the mark of the beast and when's it going to happen. And Brother Dusty, do you know the signs? And people bring me books, you know, the end times and things like that. And those books are very popular. And it's kind of almost humorous to me that some of those books, just with different titles with the same ideas, have been around ever since I've been living. That's 50 years. And so it's I'm on chapter number two, Miss Sherry, verse number 18. Those books have been around for a long time, and all of them want them, all of them say just what John says, hey, it's the last day, and here's the things you need to look for. But I want you to get that when we get to studying the Antichrist, the most important thing to remember about the Antichrist is the real Christ. He's always got to be the focus of our study, because if you read 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 12, it tells us that Jesus consumes him with the spirit or the breath of his mouth and the brightness of his coming right so the most powerful ruler the human world has ever known jesus destroys him with this that's all it takes and as we look at all of those that we may consider our enemies in government now they are no match for the christ and so anytime you look at the antichrist always keep it focused on the christ Sometimes you get distracted on that. If you make Antichrist the center of your attention and focus, you're off center. All right, Jesus Christ has to be it, and he's always the one we should be looking for. Now, other passages of Scripture talk about the political aspect of Antichrist, but John deals with it in the religious sense. 
And notice there are two. There are the, there's the Antichrist, singular, the one and only, who will be here in the last days. And then Antichrists, men who are false teachers in this world, is what he's talking about. And I, I want you to, to understand what Antichrist means. You say, oh, well, see, it's easy. It means against Christ. It does, but that's not the full meaning of it. It doesn't mean just against Christ. It means instead of Christ. See, for everything God does, Satan has a counterfeit. And the Antichrist is Satan's false Messiah. Because when he comes at first, he's going to woo the Jews and win them to his side. And he's going to build them a temple. And they're going to love him for that first part. He is their false Messiah. And anything that tries to substitute something for Jesus is Antichrist. It is Antichrist. And the Antichrist, plural of verse 18, are the false teachers. Anybody who teaches something that robs Christ of his preeminence is an Antichrist. It is a Christ instead of the Christ. You say, but Dusty, how do I know which one is the right one? Here's the secret. Walk in fellowship with God by walking in the light, and you'll know what's right. Notice at verse 20, but you have an unction. It's the same one that's used in verse 27 when he calls it the anointing. You have an anointing from God, from the Holy One, and you know all things, all right? What does that mean that I know all things? Well, I'm going to talk about that here in just a second, but here's what I want you to grasp is that how do I get that anointing from the Holy One? I walk in fellowship with Him. That's how I get it, and that's how I know when I'm hearing false doctrine. If you're in fellowship with God walking in the light, there's something on the inside of you that when you hear something that's not right, it goes, mm-mm, no, 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 no. When Mormons come to your door, mm, something's not right. Jehovah's Witness come to your door, mm, that's not right. Somebody gives you a book, you flip it open, you just get this, this feeling almost. And it's, I don't mean to make it so subjective, it's more than a feeling. You get this sense that something's not right. And sometimes I've heard it when preachers are preaching. It's a check in my spirit. Something inside me goes, lies, lies. What is that? What is that? It is the fact that when I'm walking in fellowship with God, he protects me from false doctrine. All right? And if you get sucked into false doctrine, do you know why? The antithesis is always true. If you avoid false doctrine by walking in the light and fellowship with God, if you get sucked into false doctrine, it's because you're not walking in the light, not having fellowship with God. And look in, this. it mentions it again in chapter 4, verse 4. He says that ye are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Who are we overcoming? The them. We are overcoming the antichrist. We are overcoming the false teachers, all right? God is in us, and he is greater than they are. How much greater is God than the Antichrist? Five times greater? Fifty times greater? Five hundred times greater? Five thousand times greater? Five million times greater? God is infinitely greater than the Antichrist, and because of that, we're walking in fellowship with him. We understand false doctrine when we see it and when we hear it. That's what he's telling us. It's the proof that you're walking in the light, that you can discern between Christ and Antichrist. I, sometimes people tell me, Brother Dusty, what if we're living on this earth and, and we just don't understand it? All of a sudden, man, I took the mark of the beast. I didn't realize it. Now I'm doomed for all eternity. It doesn't work that way. 
It doesn't work that way. If God warns you about taking the mark of the beast and you're his child, and if we're here for all that and some people believe we aren't, Liberty Hope holds a position that we're not, but other Christians think that we may be. Either way, if we're here, God will give us the wisdom because we have the anointing from the Lord. It helps us discern what is right and what is wrong. And every single one of us have it. Now, he says in verse 20 that if we have the unction of the Holy Spirit, of the Holy One, rather, we know all things. Now, what does that mean? Do you know all things? Do you? Nobody listening to me said yes. You don't know all things. So what did he mean? Does that mean that we're not, we don't have the unction from the Spirit because we don't know all things? No, it's in this sense, all right? So let's say that you're blind and you go to the doctor for a surgery. And he does the surgery and when he finishes, he goes, look, now you can see everything. Now, can you see everything? No, but you have the ability to see everything. And that's what he means when he says, you know all things. Because you have the unction, the anointing from the Holy One, because you're walking in fellowship with God and walking in the line and in fellowship with your brothers, you have the ability to know all things. You have that ability. God gives you the discernment to know all things. You have the capacity. Now notice in verse 27, but the anointing which ye have received of him abideth in you, and ye need not that any man teach you but as the same anointing teaches you of all things and is truth and is no lie, and even as it has taught you, you shall abide in him. Now, I heard people say before, see, brother, does this verse says, I don't need anybody to teach me. That's not what the verse is saying. The verse is saying you don't need any false teacher, any antichrist to teach you anything because you have the Holy Spirit. You have that anointing from the Lord because you're walking in fellowship with him, and he reveals all things to you. But let me tell you something. As an aside, I have heard... Lots of people use this verse, and this is their logic. Look, you don't need any commentaries. You don't need a study Bible. I saw this on YouTube just this week, I promise. You don't need anything. All you need is to get your Bible and get along with the Holy Spirit, and he will lead and direct you, and no man needs to teach you. And I want to raise my hand and say, aren't you teaching me that? Because wouldn't I have already known that if I don't need anybody to teach me? But Mr. doing the YouTube video that said that, aren't you teaching us that? So you're kind of contradicting what you said because if I, if I don't need any man to teach me, why are you teaching me? Why am I here? Why am I going to church anyway if I don't need anybody to teach me? That's not what he's saying. He's not saying that we don't need anybody to teach us. All of us need people to teach us because let me ask you something. It says that he will teach us all things. What are all things? All things, right? So do your kids go to school? Why? All they need is the Holy Spirit to learn. They don't need to go to school. Do you do on-the-job training at work? Why? If you have the Holy Spirit, you don't need to do on-the-job training. You know all things. For the Dusty, it says, it's talking about spiritual things. No, it says all things, all right? And the truth is, is the Holy Spirit, the Holy One, the unction, will teach us all things. And he'll often use other men to do so because that is the channel of human instrumentality that God has always used. You cannot get saved without human instrumentality. You can't. I said, Brother Dusty, I was all by myself when I got saved. I just opened my Bible and read it and I got saved. Yeah, who printed that Bible? A human. Who gave you that Bible? A human, all right? Humans are involved always in the salvation of men. God could send an angel down to tell you all about it, but he doesn't. In fact, when the angel comes down, came down to Cornelius in the book of Acts, Cornelius was seeking and, and the angel came down. The angel didn't tell Cornelius what to do, how about how to get saved. He said, go call Peter. 
And let Peter come and tell you. Why? Because God always uses human instrumentality, and he teaches us things through other people. And this verse does not mean that you don't need anybody to teach you. All you need to do is get along with God. That's not what that verse means. It's saying you don't need any false teacher to teach you anything. You have the unction from the Holy Spirit. That's the context of it. And I've heard guys get up to preach, and I'm not mean this in a denigrating way, but it's easy to tell when a man studies and when a man does not study. And sometimes we come off the cuff and we don't want to apply ourselves. The Bible says the study to show ourselves approved and other men have laid the groundwork for us. And there are guys who can get things all on their own. I'm not one of those guys. I got to have lots of help when I study this book. But when I study this book, there are things that I bring in, I look at it and say, no, that's false. I chunked that out. How? Because I have the unction from the Holy Spirit. That's how all of us and discern it and all of us have that ability because we have the same spirit we have the same unction from the holy one we have the same anointing if we are walking in the light as he is in the light and having fellowship one with another it's the proof that we overcome false doctrine and false doctrine will roll off of you like water off a duck's back if you're walking in fellowship with god you cannot be led astray if you're walking in fellowship with god and walking in the light because the unction from the holy spirit lets you know all things it will tell you and if you're a christian you know there have been times where it has directed your path and said hey that's not right you need to get over here that's the unction from the holy one and we need each other and encouragement and we need each other's teaching but we don't need teaching from false prophets and if you're one of those guys who thinks he just needs the bible that's fine I'm more power to you but i'm here to tell you that god uses other men to teach us and sometimes sometimes it's an element of pride so, Brother Dusty, I want to come up with something fresh and new. Well, there's no new thing under the sun, and I promise you, if you preach on it or you teach on it, somebody else before you has, glean from the work of others and then develop your own stuff. Spurgeon used to say, I gather nectar from many flowers, but I always make my own honey. And that's the, the process we should use. All right, so in our initial assessment of 1 John, we talked about how do we know we're walking in fellowship with God? And the first thing we have been discussing for the last two weeks is we are walking in the light. Right attitude towards sin, obedience, and rejection of false doctrine. Let's talk about the second way we know we're walking in fellowship with God, and that is because we do righteousness. Look at chapter 3. We'll be here for the rest of our time. Chapter 3, verses 7 through 9. Now, these verses are verses that have confused a lot of Christians, this one included. And I want to share with you some things I've learned. 7 through 9. Little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he, God, is righteous. He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin, because he is born of God. In this the children of God are manifested in the children of the devil. Whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother. We'll talk about the love of the brother next time. But did you get what those verses say? They say that if you sin, you are of the devil, and you are not walking in fellowship with God. But if you are walking in fellowship with God and you're born of him, you cannot sin. Now, how are we to take that? Of course, the natural interpretation of that, if you read this without any other parts of the Bible, you would take it that Christians should be sinlessly perfect. But we know this is not true because in this very passage of Scripture back in chapter 2, verse 1, it says, If any man sin, not 
not that they won't, but when they do, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. And if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just. So if he makes provision for sin for Christians, then we know that this verse cannot mean sinless perfection. So what does it mean when it says that a Christian, whoever is born of God, does not commit sin? There's a couple interpretations. I'm going to give you all three of them, all right? Because all three of them have an element of truth. But the last one is the one I feel the strongest about, as I would structure it, all right? So the first is this, is that those words mean that a Christian does not habitually sin. He does not practice sin. Galatians 5.21 talks about that. It's not just the do. It is that we do not practice sin. Can, can a Christian live in continual habitual sin? Well, Hebrews Chapter 12 tells us that God will bring chastisement into our lives. And if he does not bring chastisement into our lives, it's because we are bastards and not sons. We are illegitimate. So he means he's, we're not his. So if a Christian can consistently live a life that never returns to God, never does right, then probably he does not belong to God. Now, Dusty's not sitting on the throne. I'm not the one who passes judgment on who's saved and who's not saved. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. Because I've met many, many people. I work at the rescue mission a lot. I'm preaching in the morning. If you guys will pray for me, uh, if, you're, if you're up, I'll start preaching about 7 o'clock in the morning. And there's lots and lots of guys there who said, well, I got saved when I was 10 years old or 12 years old. And there's been absolutely zero evidence in their life. They don't love God. They, they don't like Christian music. They look at church attendance as a duty and tithing and giving as a tax. You know, they don't have any desire for the things of God. It's because they're not saved. And they've lived in habitual sin, living in immorality and adultery, shacking up, using drugs, alcohol, committing crimes. But I'm a Christian. No, you're not. No. This verse teaches us that you cannot habitually sin. You can't continue to live in that without God's chastisement coming. And if his chastisement doesn't come, it's because you're not saved. And I know guys who've been at the rescue mission who have left God repeatedly. And I'm careful here. I'm very careful here, but we're going to get to it. First John 5 talks about a sin unto death. I know guys that I used to know who are dead today, and they're dead because they consistently kept trying to live a life that they were supposed to have left. And the proof is, is that we walk in the light, and we cannot continue a life of habitual sin and claim to be children of God. Now, can Christians lie? Can you lie? Have you lied? Of course you have. You've lied since you've been saved. Any embellishment of the truth, any leaving out of something that makes you look worse is a lie. The Bible says all liars shall have their part in the lake of fire. And so I, it's, it's a difference in approach. Put it to you this way. If a sheep is going down the road and falls in a mud puddle, what does the sheep do? He gets up immediately and he's uncomfortable and disgusted. If a hog goes down the road and falls in the mud, what does it do? It wallers in it. That's the difference between those who fall into sin as a Christian and those who fall into sin as a lost person. One can live in it habitually. It's his environment. It's his habitat. He is at home in it. But one cannot. And if you've ever wandered from God, and I don't recommend that you do this at all, but if you've ever wandered from God and you are a believer, you know that even in the midst of your revelry and rebellion, there was something on the inside of you that said, are you done yet? Are you done yet? I'm waiting on you. I love you. Are you done yet? You know better than that. You were made for more than that. Why are you here? Why are you here? And sometimes my wife and I 
have been to things and 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 sometimes we get in places around others and afterwards we'll talk about it and she said you know dusty i i didn't feel comfortable there and one of the main reasons we didn't feel comfortable is because of the amount of unbelievers who are going a different direction it's just it's just not it just don't fit why don't i fit because the child of god cannot habitually be around sin and survive he cannot that's one interpretation and there's application there, and there's elements of truth in that interpretation, and I don't cast it aside. The second is that some people say that John is talking about the two natures, that when we get saved, we have a sin nature, which all of us were born with, but we are given another nature. Thank you for that hand clap, Miss Anna. We're given another nature, and that new nature cannot sin, and it's true. That new nature in me, he cannot sin because he is born of God. But that interpretation takes the teeth out of what this verse is teaching us. Because it's saying, well, like Paul did in John and Romans chapter 7, that if I sin, it's my old man, it's not me that doing it, it's my old man, my new man cannot sin. I get all that, but John is trying to drive home a point. And by saying, oh, that's just my old nature, it's too easy to brush that to the side and write it off as just an expression of my own nature, my new man can't sin. And it saves me from the conviction that this passage brings. Because this passage says that if I'm born of God, I do not commit sin. And if I do commit sin, I'm of the devil, and I'm not righteous, and I do not know God. So he's telling me, all right? And so I want to make this point. This is the third interpretation, and it is the one that I feel the strongest about this verse is saying this is the standard for christians put it to you this way uh were you ever in the boy scouts i was in a christian version of it of course i've been in awana when i was a little boy yeah awana's that old um but the scouts creed or their pledge goes a scout is always trustworthy are scouts always trustworthy no, there are many scouts who are not trustworthy, but that is their standard. That is the expectation. It is the ideal that a scout always be trustworthy. A scout is always brave. Is a scout always brave? No, he's not always brave, but that's the ideal, the standard. What this passage is saying is Christians should not sin. That's what he's saying. It's the ideal. It's the standard. In other words, it is abnormal for a Christian to sin. It's abnormal. It is not normal. You don't have to sin. Sometimes I think we use our sin nature as just a cloak or an excuse not to live righteously. Oh, you know, I'm a sinner. I remember, I can't remember which one of my boys it was. I think it was Andrew. But when I was dealing with him as a young man about his need of Jesus, I would say, Andrew, you know you're a sinner. And he would say, yeah, just like everybody else. Just like everybody else. He would always say that. And what he was really doing was just deflecting the fact that, hey, I'm just like everybody else. And he was minimizing the fact that God saw him as a sinner individually. And these verses are teaching us that the standard is, is that a Christian ought never sin. It ought to be abnormal for a Christian to lose his temper. It ought to be unusually strange for a Christian to commit adultery. It ought to be abnormal for a Christian to be envious and covetousness, covetous. He doesn't have to sin. We don't have to give in just because we have a sinful nature. Now that Andrew's about grown, not in height, but in age and maturity, kind of, I don't think he's listening tonight, so I can talk about him pretty freely. 
when he's supposed to be in school in college. But I'm working with Porter now. And sometimes there's a dichotomy in Porter as there is with all kids. All right, There's the sweet boy side, and sometimes he can be so sweet it just melts your heart. And then other times there's this other Porter who is a demon from, from Hades, and uh, I just want to beat the fool out of him. And uh, his mama uses stronger language than that, so don't, don't you know, don't, don't fuss at me about it. Uh, you just want to kill him. And, uh, and so sometimes when you talk to him, you get this idea where, you know, where, where's my porter at? Mm, where's my sweet boy? That's, that's not my sweet boy. That's not the boy I know. Where's he at? Come on, let's look for him. Let's look under the bed. Is my sweet porter? No, he's not there. Is my porter, is he outside? No, my porter's not. Where's my, where's my sweet porter? Is Porter there? Of course he's there. I'm looking for the ideal. And what God is saying in this passage of Scripture is this. Christians don't need to sin. Christians don't need to live a life of sin. Whosoever is born of God does not commit sin. That is the ideal. That is the standard. That is where we're supposed to live. You said, Brother Dusty, I, 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 I can't live up to that. No, you can't. That's why you need your advocate, the Father, who is at the right hand of Jesus Christ, interceding for us. That's who you need. That's who can help you with these things. And that is the ideal that he holds up for us. Now, I want you to back up just a little bit to the beginning of chapter 3. And I'm going to tie this together as we wrap up this idea of being able to prove that we have fellowship with God because we do righteousness. First is walking in the light. Second is that we do righteousness. Notice chapter 3, verse 1. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. Now, he's, he's making this differentiation that we are the children of God, all right? We are the sons of God. I'm going to talk about that in just a second. There's some things we do not know. There's some things we do know. And the things we do know should give us a hope that lead us to this ideal of Christians not sinning. I'm not saying you get to sinless perfection, but the goal of your life should not be to easily give in because you're a sinner. But the goal of your life should be the continual resistance and yielding to Jesus Christ so that you may overcome. And verse 3 tells us that he that has this hope purifies himself even as he is pure. What is the hope? This is the hope, all right? First of all, we, we relish the love of God that made us his sons, all right? It says, now are we the sons of God. Not that we will be. We are right now sons of God, right? And what does it mean to be a son of God? Well, what was I before? I was a child of the devil, a child of sin. I've been transferred from one family to another. And John chapter 1 verse 12 makes this process clear for us. But as many as received him, to them gave he power or authority, like power of attorney, gave them the authority to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. That's what, this, that's what the verse is talking about, believing on his name and receiving him. What, what's the difference between receiving and believing, trying to be the son of God? All right? Well, let's say we're on an airplane, and the stewardess comes up and says, 
Uh, Dusty, the plane is going down, and here is your parachute. What do I do? I receive it. Okay? Now, I have received it. Do I believe it? If I express belief in it, I might tell everybody, oh, I'm so thankful for this parachute, man. I'm so glad I got a parachute. Look, I'm, my life's been saved. But do I really believe it? How do I know I believe in what I have received? When I strap it on my back and I jump out of an airplane, all right? Jump out of an airplane. Some of you may have lost me, you say. I don't, I'm not sure about that. Nothing's happened on my end, so I apologize for that. But if I take the parachute and I receive it, then I jump out of the plane, then I have believed it. And he says, to as many as received him, to them gave me power to become the sons of God, even to those that believe on his name. So when I cast myself on Jesus Christ as my only hope for salvation, that is the expression of true faith and belief. And that is what makes me, gives me the authority to call myself a son of God. Now notice in this verse, he says, it does not appear what we shall be. What does he mean by that? Well, it simply means that what God has for us in the future, I have not seen nor ear heard, neither hath it entered into the heart of man the things that God hath prepared for them that love him. We do not know the plans that God has for us on this earth and in the world to come, all right? As I look from this position of 50 years old back to my early 20s when I got out of Bible college and started working as a youth pastor, in Shelby, North Carolina, I had no idea all of the paths that God was going to lead me on. I'm just amazed that, wow, I wouldn't have dreamed these things. But even in this sense of being able to look back and marvel at what God has done, what does that predict for the future? What's the last years of my life going to be? <laughs> it does not appear, but it's always better than what you anticipate if you're walking in the light as he is in the light and you're having fellowship one with another. But the primary application is we do not know what we will enjoy when we get to be with him where he is. Because he talks about that fact that we're going to be there one day. We don't know what that's like. We don't understand it. If we did, we would lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily besets us, and we would run with patience the race that is set before us. That's what we'd be doing. If we really understood what waited for us in heaven, if we really understood the crown of life that was available to us and the rewards that we would win, we could not be held back in our eagerness and desire to win the crowns that he has for us. And Jesus is holding up the crown for us to win, and we're off running our diversions and not caring about that. That's because we know not what shall be. But then the verse says, but we know that, this is what we do know, the part we don't know, we're the sons of God, it doth not appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him. That's what we do know. That when he shows up, we're going to be just like him. All right? We just like him. And we shall see him as he is. I want you to think about that. What is Jesus as he is? See, most of what you know about Jesus from this book is not as he is. It's as he was. All right? Well, Brother Dusty, I remember a little baby in, in Bethlehem. That, that's as he was. Well, he, he walked through this world, and he, he died on the cross. That's as he was. All right? He rose from the dead. Even that is as he was. All right? All that we know about Jesus is as he was. What will it be when it says, as he is? 
What does that mean? It means that he's no longer despised and rejected. He's promoted and glorified. He's no longer not having a place to lay his head. He owns this entire world as king of kings and lord of lords. He's no longer despised and rejected of men. He's uplifted, praised, and worshipped for all eternity. That's how he is, not how he was. And he says, this verse tells us, that when he, we, when he appears, we shall see him like he is. As we live in this world, as you turn the TV on, you watch anything, Christians are made fun of, mocked. Jesus Christ's name is taken in vain. He is cast aside and rejected. They don't want nothing to do with him. That's fine. There's a day coming when they shall see him as he is. And he is in his exalted throne on high. And the Bible says, until God makes his enemies his footstool. Now, footstool is not necessarily a word we use all the time, but it simply means something I put my feet on. And Jesus Christ is going to place his feet on his enemies, and we shall see him as he is. I don't know about you, but that is an exciting thing. Exciting thing. And we shall be with him, the verse says. I don't know everything about that life. I don't. My eye of faith is dim, but it is enough that Christ knows all, and I shall be with him and I'll see him as he is. Now, do you have this hope? Do you have something inside of you going, yes, that's right, Brother Dusty, that's right. Then verse 3 applies to you. If you do have this hope, you will purify yourself even as he is pure, because whoso committeth sin is of the devil. But whoever is born of God does not commit sin and lives righteous. That's the standard. And see, the Bible is always good about giving us the sublime, heavenly, woo, truth, and then driving it home right into the practical, everyday life. And if your gospel message that you say you believe does not translate into shoe leather on the street, it's not worth anything. Your philosophy, your way of life is determined by your theology, and if you don't live it, you don't believe it. And you can't say that you're looking for his glorious appearing and you'll see him as he is if you're not trying in your life by his strength to purify yourself even as he is pure in preparation for that day together because you cannot live in habitual distance from God and still claim to be his child. That is the proof of the gospel. But if you do walk in the light as he is in the light, the standard is, is that you should sin less and less. You cannot live in habitual sin. Your new nature can't sin at all. And you strive for that standard of always trying to please him. And when false doctrine is brought into your life, because you have the unction of the Holy Spirit, you're able to understand it and resist it and cast it aside as antichrist. That's what John is saying. And all of this is rooted in this truth. Fellowship with God. And fellowship with God this way produces fellowship with his children this way. This is the evidence that we are walking in the light. Now, next time we're together, we're going to finish John. I know there's two chapters left, and we're not going to cover it in verse-by-verse verse detail. I don't have enough Wednesday nights for that, all right? I've already lost some of you just in six weeks. What would it be if it was six months, all right? And so we're going to be talking about that. And one of the things we're going to be discussing a little bit, and you can go ahead and read about it, is the love that we are to have for the brethren as the proof that we live in fellowship with God. There's some conviction there, but brother, there's some encouragement too. And I just remind you that no preaching and teaching is worth anything if it just provides you with information. When the word of God is taught and explained, just like Pastor Matt did on Sunday, there ought to be an element of encouragement, but there ought to be something in it 
that cuts me a little bit. And the way that God cuts me is always good. I read a writer one time. He said, I just want God to show up. I don't care if he comes with roses or with whips. As long as he shows up, that's what I need. Just don't leave me like I am. Do something in my life. Help me. Encourage me in my growth or chasing me and bring me back to where I need to be. But do something. And God, when he always cuts out a cancer in your life, he always rubs in a little salve, smooths in a little salve of grace as well so that we're always encouraged. He does not cast us aside, but works with us in his long-suffering and patience. Here's something you should consider. God has spent more than you know to win you. He sent his son to die for you before you ever understood things, before you were ever born. And then even when you were running from him in your life, he chased you. You didn't even know he was chasing you. But he had people who prayed for you. He put people in your path to witness to you. You heard preaching that preachers were preaching all designed to win you. And when he finally tackled you, sometimes kicking and screaming and drug you back, won you to himself, his love rescued you and broke your heart and wrapped his arms around you. And you finally understood that you were an idiot for fighting him for so long because he just wanted your good. And he cleaned you up and he fixed you up and he gave you hope and a purpose. When he did all of that, having invested all of that, there is no way he will cast you aside now because he has too much invested in you to set you aside as worthless. He knew what he was getting when he got you, yet he still considered you the joy that was set before him, and he pursued you with an everlasting love. He spoke comfortably to you, and he allured you and brought you to himself. He won your heart, and now he has promised that having won your heart, he's going to carry you all the way through to present you as a glorious church without spot or wrinkle. And in that day, we shall see him as he is and if there's something in your heart that cries out, Abba, Father, even as I talk about these things, it is because you have fellowship with the Father and the unction of the Holy One leads, protects, and teaches you. And your spirit and my spirit are agreeing together that God is present even virtually through this screen because he is omnipresent everywhere and we anticipate the day when all the sons of God are gathered together and we shall see him as he is. There's lots I don't know, but there are some things I do know. And the one thing I do know is that the child of God that I am and that you are, we shall be with him. And being with him is all that matters. But I can enjoy the foretaste of all of that yet to come by walking in fellowship with him right now. When I walk in fellowship with him, I can have fellowship with you because the two of us are walking together in agreement. And the fellowship here is sweet. You know, it's so sweet. Come on Sunday morning sometimes. It's just a sweet time. But how much sweeter will it be when all distractions are removed, when there is no flesh to shackle us, no pride to shame us, and we can worship God uninhibited with no time constraints at all. What will that day be? So, Brother Dusty, that sounds terrible. Then you don't know what I'm talking about, and you're not walking in the light. Because if you're walking in the light, you cannot wait for that, and neither can I. But I enjoy the little foretaste here. 
And I just remind you as I left, as, as we started, remind you as I, when I, as I leave, as I started this class, don't let your heart be troubled. God's on his throne. He's accomplishing his purpose. And when all of the wreckage is said and done, Jesus Christ will still be on his throne. Every knee will be bowing. Every tongue will be confessing. And Jesus will be proclaimed what he already is, King of kings and Lord of lords. Live in the good of it today by faith. And turn off the news. Read this news. Always right. Never slanted. Never slanted. Straight from God to you. I love you. Thank you so much for watching with me. Read 1 John. Thank you for thanking me. See you next time. Bye-bye.